Maude Davies was a remarkable woman of incredible intelligence who was focused on improving the plight of women, children, and the working class in Britain during the early 1900s. She was even considered a bit of a rising star in academic circles. Yet, she ended up dead in a railroad tunnel while she was only in her 30s. What happened to this poor woman, and why did police refuse to investigate her death as a murder? Welcome, welcome, welcome into another edition of Killing Missing Hidden. We we just really keep pumping these bad boys out, don't we? Well, we love that you keep showing up to consume them as well. As you hopefully know, I'm your old buddy Brad, and I run the slop shop. As some of my peers like to remind me, I need to tell y'all who I am. I'm a former criminal defense trial attorney. I spent almost 10 years doing that mess. I'm someone who's been in the courtroom. I've challenged police officers on their investigations. I've poked holes in criminal theories brought by prosecutors. That, I have to say, because apparently it gives me podcast cred. I don't know. You know, generally we like to bounce between murders and missing persons and the weird of the world. But today we're going to go with our old standby. That's right. An old-fashioned murder. With an emphasis on old because it took place in the early 1900s. I've seen this one referred to as Britain's Lost Unsolved Mystery. Now, before I begin, and you know I don't like to ramble with being a podcast because you're listening because you want to hear about murder and all those bloodthirsty things because y'all aren't well. But I got to give a special shout out to some of our listeners, specifically to those lonely listeners. Those that are the only listeners in their respective city or country. I don't know your names, but in reviewing our sets the other day, I noticed we had several areas with just one lone little listener. And so I'm dedicating this episode to y'all. So for you mysterious solitary listener in Hickory, Mississippi, Amsterdam, New York, Saratoga Springs, Utah, Mount Pleasant, Pennsylvania, and Twinsburg, Ohio. I hope you enjoy. And on an international front, we've got that one listener holding strong in India, Brazil, Turkey, Greece, and even South Korea. I love you folks for being the vanguard of this podcast in your respective areas. And I hope that you can start spreading the show amongst your friends and your colleagues. Think of us as like a fun COVID. You want to go around and hug everybody with our podcast so they get it. And you know, if you send me something showing that you're from one of these areas, uh, maybe you'll get a special surprise from your K-mate sugar daddy. Okay, but enough sexy talk. Let's get to what brought you here. The murder. So who here is a huge fan of the work of Maud Francis Davies? What's that? You've never heard of the woman. 
My God, you, you people, read a freaking book sometimes. Or just stumble backwards into her story like I did. Allow me to educate you. Now, Maud was a bit of a big deal in the early 20th century. She was an author and a sociologist who had studied at the London School of Economics. What was it that made her such a big deal? It was the fact that she was able to do all of this without a, uh, without a PP, shall we say, maturely. Yeah, that was really her claim to fame is the fact that she did all this as a woman. I mean, sort of. We get into the details of her research a bit because it kind of plays into the true crime aspect of this case. But just know that she was considered amazing because she was a non-man who could read and write and even think independently. What an amazing time it must have been to live in, huh? Okay, all right. So Maud was actually a massively important figure during her time that's kind of been lost to history. She was like this true intellectual who was able to support herself, and she used her free time to work really tirelessly to try to improve society, particularly the lower ends of society. She worked in and even helped lead organizations devoted to civil rights in England, uh, organizations dedicated to improving work conditions for women, and she was particularly dedicated to eliminating sweatshops from the UK. She tended to be in these groups, these organizations that worked for these causes. She almost always ended up kind of being the de facto-like reporter for the group. Um, she would compile reports and studies on the working conditions the poor face and the high mortality rates that workers faced. Re really gave her some celebrity, though, was what was known as the Black Report. And this was where she went to Corsley in England and really focused in extreme detail on the conditions of the working class. This was a town that was near the sea, so during the harvest season, the men would go out on ships and try to collect all the fish they could. Meanwhile, the women would work in these tailor shops. And, you know, these were the conglomerates that would be used to support the wealthier classes in London and other places. It was... Of course, as you imagine at this time, it was not a great environment. You know, these people are living hand to mouth or paycheck to paycheck, however you want to look at it. And she noted, you know, that the women, the men would work in these tailor mills until the harvest season. Then the, the wives would come in and take over for their husband. And she learned that when the women would come in, their wages would get cut in half or more. During the time she studied, she couldn't find any situation other than one where a woman actually was allowed to serve as a foreman, and again, at a greatly reduced rate. And, of course, the men out on the fishing vessels had their own dangers to worry about. Now, in fairness, I didn't read the whole Black Report, even though it was republished recently in, like, I think in 2013, so about 10 years ago. So it's, it's probably easy to find, but, you know, I just didn't look for it. And I'm not that big of a nerd. 
Um, but when you read through it, there are some legitimate complaints that can be made. One of them was that Maud was really out of touch with how the world worked. Like she thought if you read her report that the women who were working these long hours around these dangerous sewing machines for pennies were doing so just to get some extra spending money. She thought that they were saving this money to buy things like bicycles and pianos. She didn't grasp the concept that they needed this money to feed their children. Now, academics loved the report. They, it was so thorough and so well done, and the statistical analysis was just spot on. You know, just all the things these ivory tower sorts look for, she nailed. But the people who were the focus of her report were, to put it mildly, outraged. And it didn't really help much um, that she focused on her hometown. Yeah, she was from Corsley, and she, her parents were still living there. And apparently her report was so detailed that it was easy to identify who she was talking about when she gave specific case studies. And she made the mistake of referring to these people, well, she threw a lot of bombs, you know, a lot of shade, as the kids would say. She called folks a dirty lot, that many of them just drank their profits away, and that many of the women kept their houses too dirty to live in. And like so offensive did the villagers find this report that they kind of like, petitioned the local government and then petitioned higher up the governmental, you know, the chain of command, I guess, in the government at the time. I don't know who governs academics in England so or in the UK, so I apologize for that. But they, like, worked. They legitimately tried to stop this from ever being formally published because they found it so offensive. And really, if from what I understand... When you read it, it is a lot like a wrestler that's, you know, just talking trash about the crowd, as we've all seen, because we're all huge wrestling fans, I'm sure. But you also have to remember, like, this was kind of accidental. She was just that naive. She went into this report with the best of intentions. But we all know what Jules Winfield says about the best of intentions, right? If you've ever seen Pulp Fiction, which... God, I hope you have. But it, the academics loved it. They just couldn't get enough of this report. They actually had it turned into a book for some reason. And everybody in this ivory tower of education bought a copy of it and loved it. Everybody that lived in the real world didn't care. Um, except, of course, for the citizenry, she'd be smirched. Uh, it got to the point that she developed a reputation among the working class and among the poor that was less than positive. And it was such that she didn't really feel comfortable being in many cities anymore. Uh, she couldn't go home and visit her parents because, you know, I mean, she had burned everybody that lived in the Dagum town and just 
throwing their dirty laundry across all these pages. They were a little bitter about that, as in case you couldn't tell. And But even when she's visiting totally unrelated, unconnected villages, like word had got around that this woman is here to make you look like a schmuck. So don't trust her. Don't be kind to her and all that. It got so bad that she actually had to leave England to pursue her academic research. And her first project outside of England was she decided she was going to investigate prostitution and human trafficking from kind of what occurred in the West, the French West Indies, and then on to America. So she kind of followed the, the trail of prostitution and human trafficking. And this was, again, this is in the early 1900s. She did this for six, seven, eight years, somewhere in there, before finally returning to England in 1913 so she could write up her report and publish her findings. And again, I just want to stress, like, Maud doesn't have some axe to grind. She thoroughly thought she was doing good. She had this philosophy that, you know, society can really only evolve if we take an objective look at all aspects of it including all the warts that would grow on it. And she wanted to highlight those warts because she thought if the people on power were aware of these warts, they could work towards eliminating them and improving conditions. But she just didn't get it. She, she dove headfirst into these problems and she tried to learn as much about them, but she just she couldn't contextualize it the right way. She didn't, again, women are not working 12-hour shifts in this giant Taylor's sewing machine sweatshop to save up to buy a piano. You know this, I know this, but Maude grew up in a world where that just never occurred to her. Like, she thought that you would slave away and put your savings aside so you can get a neat bicycle. It's kind of a classic story of a person trying to become the hero and ending up the villain instead. And of course, you know, lots of people would argue that Maud, because of how naive she was, she didn't really appreciate this dust storm she had kicked up. Again, she couldn't go back to her hometown. She couldn't travel safely through a lot of towns and cities throughout the UK. Maud did have some sense of this problem because she did avoid areas that she thought may be troublesome. But she never really truly fully grasped what the problem was. So we're going to jump to 1913 when she's coming back to England. I guess we kind of left off there anyway, right? But this is really where the story starts for our purposes. When she's coming back to England, she's different. She's scared. She's not, you know, she's always been known as cheerful and energetic and determined and, you know, very headstrong. On this trip, though, she was none of those things. She was unusually quiet. She made odd comments to her traveling companions. Uh, she told one, I hope you having been seen traveling with me 
and speaking to me won't bring you any troubles. She began, you know, openly questioning why some people were on the ship she was on. She wanted to know if they were spies that were out to get her. She never said who they were spying for. Just that there were spies all around. She became kind of friends with a woman that's only known to history as Mrs. Davies, who's unrelated to Maud here. But she, during the trip, she went to Mrs. Davies and asked for her home address because she thought she may need to be called as a witness should anything happen on the ship. She spent a lot of her time, she's traveling from New York to Liverpool, and she spent a lot of her time during the sea travel locked up in a room, complaining of headaches or just a general feeling of being ill. But she, she survived the trip. She made it to Liverpool on January 31st, 1913. So huzzah for her. On a side note, can I just say that I think Liverpool is the oddest name for a city ever? And I've always felt that way. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know who thought it was a good name. It's just weird to me. But regardless of my weird hangups, Maud disembarked from the ship in Liverpool. And as they're gathering, you know, all the passengers are gathering their luggage and preparing to for the next leg of their trip. Maud goes up to Mrs. Davies and begs her and says, please, I cannot travel alone. Would you be willing to share a train car with me? And it, they were headed in roughly the same direction. So Mrs. Davies was like, okay, yeah, I'll be happy to. So they are getting on a train and they are scheduled to arrive in Houston. And while they're riding along, Maud gets up, you know, roughly halfway through the trip, takes off her coat and wanders out of her car and is never seen again. That's kind of the last thing we truly know about Maud's life. Her luggage was on the train. It was never picked up. The next point on the timeline where she comes back up on society's radar is when her dead body is discovered on February 2nd at 2 a.m. by a railroad worker hidden kind of in this tunnel. Hidden may not be the right word, but it was she was definitely in a tunnel in a place where the average passerby would never, ever see her. And the cause of her death was fairly obvious to the train worker, to police when they arrived. Maud had been decapitated. So speculation starts immediately, of course. Was this some sort of unfortunate accident? Was this a planned murder? Was it suicide? Was it something more sinister? Police were called, like I mentioned, but, you know, as we've learned, Back at the turn of the century, cops didn't really have a lot of sophisticated tools at their disposal. The detectives that arrived and the medical examiner or coroner quickly developed this theory about what happened to Maud. See, when the coroner was reviewing her body, he found that she had 15 puncture wounds around her heart. They were little ones. Now, you know, it's not like someone was... Sticking a machete through her chest. 
these were more like pin pricks from a hat pin. And all 15 of them were clustered very close together and roughly in the region right above the heart. The coroner said not a single one of these wounds was fatal, even collectively. They really weren't a huge deal. And the coroner found really no other wounds, you know, besides a severed head. And so the police kind of thought, well, maybe, maybe Maud did this to herself. I mean, she was wearing, you know, she had a hat pin on her. It was, it couldn't be found at the time when they recovered her body. And as far as I know, it was never recovered. But, you know, how else could somebody stab her 15 times in the exact same spot, essentially? I mean, if there was a struggle, if she was fighting back in any way whatsoever, those stab wounds would be all over the, her chest and her torso. Instead, they're just limited to a very narrow range. And they became confident was a hat pin during a second examination because the coroner was actually able to find and remove a metal piece that had broken off in one of the wounds. And it was very consistent with what a hat pin would look like during this time. So yeah, the police are going with this theory that Maud stabbed herself 15 times in the chest, disposed of the hat pin. And then they hypothesized she became dizzy from the wounds, possibly went into shock and stumbled into the tunnel and fell on the railroad tracks, which caused her to become decapitated when a train came by. They insisted her time of death had to be 4.30 in the morning because that's when her watch stopped, meaning that she was out. Well, let me, let me step back. Depending on which report you read, it was either 4.30 in the morning or 4.30 in the afternoon. So she either laid on those tracks for 10 hours before she was discovered or 22 hours before she was discovered. The 22-hour one can't work with the rest of the timeline. So she was discovered at 2 a.m. on February 2nd. Police surmise that she had to have been killed at 4.30 p.m. the day before. I don't know why they think her watch being stopped at that time is so critical to the time of death. No effort was made to explain how they came to this conclusion. And no one really found it odd that her watch was stopped at all. I mean, it's not like she's living in this steampunk alternative universe where the watch was hardwired into her own nervous system or something crazy like that, you know? The medical examiner or coroner also found during his assessments that Maud was suffering from an unknown lung condition. Since she was female, we, of course, have to conclude that the illness caused Maud to suffer from feverish fears. No witness testimony backed this up. I mean, you have the general, her general fear in coming back to England. I personally would attribute that to the fact that, you know, 
she's ticked off a lot of people and maybe she doesn't feel so safe going back there and some other reasons that we'll get into for a minute. I'm not really inclined to write this up as, oh, she got the vapors and got all, you know, lost her mind. Nothing like that. It, if you read the autopsy report, it's very sexist, just to be blunt about it. You know, it's women are weak, and this is what happens when women are, you know, their nervous system just can't handle such a stressful situation. They're too delicate. Now, when the medical examiner's report was released, her friends and colleagues were like, this is not the woman we knew. You know, you describing her as being scared because she had a fever and subject to flights of fancy and all this wild stuff, that's not the woman we knew. And at the coroner's inquest, that's what they would testify to. Like, she was level-headed. She was kind of down to earth in general, as much as her station in life would allow her to be. You know, she was very smart and passionate and all that stuff like we talked about earlier. But ultimately, the coroner's inquest reached the conclusion that the cause of death be left open, meaning... They couldn't determine it was a homicide. They could not determine it was not a homicide. They couldn't really pinpoint a specific reason for her to be dead. So, cause of death just left open, which means the police could continue to investigate it and could treat it as a homicide if they chose to. They continued to investigate it some but you kind of get the feeling like they were just going through the motions. When detectives were inspecting where Maud was found, there's no reports concerning the blood in that area. So we don't even know for sure that like the blood tracks are, or the railroad tracks are covered in blood. We don't know that one way or another. But when they were searching the area, they saw that where she had died was not far from the High Street Kensington Station. Um, it was kind of a rest stop for train travelers, I guess. So they decided to check it out. It's a place that's not, it's not a true stop, apparently, from what I could gather, at least at this point in history. So it wasn't always manned. It... Sounds like it was this little building that maybe had a restroom, had some flyers and some books, magazines, newspapers, things like that you could read. It was just kind of this empty building that sat out there. During the day, there was probably a railroad worker who was there to answer questions and whatnot. But when they go and expect it, police learn that, or they police find that there's drops of blood on the floor. And of course, we're way too far back in history to discern whether or not these are Maud's drops of blood, but they're consistent inside with the, you know, the uh, a pinprick wound. And so police note it, they think it's important. And this, they work this into this theory that she gets off at this little station slash rest stop 
for whatever reason, decides to kill herself, tries to do it with the hat pin, stabs herself 15 times, but she ain't killing herself. She then wanders down to where the tunnels are, and from shock or from a deliberate decision, kills herself. That's the official stuff. That's what's in the reports and all that good stuff. We've got a few rumors to go through that I think are compelling. One of the main rumors that were whispered through the pubs and other gathering locations in this area was this wasn't an accident. Maud was killed. She was murdered. All for that despicable report she had produced about her hometown. You know, in the locals' minds, she got what was coming to her because she spoke so harshly of where she was from or where her parents lived. There were some others who, let's say, were perhaps a little bit more criminally connected who suggested that, yeah, she wasn't liked because of that, but the real reason she had to go is because of her research on human trafficking. She stuck her nose where it didn't belong, and maybe this report she had been working on, there were certain criminal and business elements, wanted to make sure it never saw the light of day. This would at least be plausible because Maud was so enthusiastic to dive into her research without fully appreciating the consequences of doing so, right? Now, there's other rumors that claim it was suicide. Again, I keep harping on this, and I'm not doing it in a negative way. I just think it's important, you know. Maud's naive. She didn't really understand how the world worked. If she truly studied human trafficking and sexual slavery, this could have been too much for her to take. She couldn't process it, according to these rumors. And, you know, seeing the torment of these women and these children, especially when she saw that it was white women and white children that were being subjected to this, was just too much of a shock to Maud. This, and again, remember, Maud's growing up in a time where like we've alluded to already, men are superior to women. Well, in the same socioeconomic spheres, general thinking, white people are superior to all other people. So, you know, bad things only happen to those who aren't born white, generally. But she's seeing this to be totally untrue. And when she gets back, she just can't get over what she saw. And you know, suicide would be the reason you would see these self-inflicted stab wounds. And, you know, the decapitation may have been her way to kind of Anna Karina out of her life. Of course, family and friends hotly disputed those rumors, saying, no, that's not who she was. She was very analytical. She could have compartmentalized this. She could have dealt with it. And she would have felt an obligation to bring this to society's consciousness, bring it to the forefront, shine a spotlight on it, so people were aware of the horrors that are going on in the world. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is all history has recorded about the death of Maud Davies. For such a big mystery, I mean, if you're going to name this, you know, Britain's biggest lost unsolved mystery, 
you think there'd be more to go on. And considering Maud's place in academia, it's just odd to me that it was left as it, as it was. There's no pressure for police to do more than they did. Was this a sign of the times that speak to how valued women truly were? I don't know, and I'm not really competent to offer an opinion, but, you know, I've never let that stand in the way of me offering an opinion before. And this was a really odd case to research. And because even though it's discussed a lot, and there's lots of websites that talk about Maud and her death, there's really only been two articles written about her. All these other websites are just copying and pasting the same information over and over and over and over. And I get it. I mean, this took place a long time ago. It would be very difficult to dig up sources and all that. And, you know, again, someone in my position, I can't travel over to England and search through newspaper records and things like that. I'm turning these episodes out too quick. So I got to rely on what I find on the Internet. And what I find is the same two articles published over and over and over and over again. I got frustrated and I even bought a book that was specifically on murders that occurred in this part of England and they chose not to cover this murder. In fact, in the introduction, they specifically say, we're not going to touch this case. So I was very frustrated by that. You know, I did the free preview. It started at chapter one and skipped over the introduction. Even more fun. No one source agreed on how this woman spelled her name. We can't even get that right. I may be entitling this episode with the wrong name or a misspelling. Maud was either spelled with an E or without an E, depending on what source you look at. Her last name was either Davies or Davis, depending on what website you look at. And Davies is spelled multiple different ways. It's just crazy. That's the hill I was climbing as I was trying to figure this one out for y'all. But, you know, I know what everybody's thinking. Brad, what do you think? Everybody loves my opinion. Or that's why I tell myself. That's why I keep doing the podcast. Um, and this was a really interesting one to ponder. I think I spent more time just thinking about the facts in this case than I did researching, which is very, very rare. So... We have such little evidence that a lot of my thoughts are going to be based off of speculation. In general, I fall into the murder camp. I don't know about the suicide. Her odd actions leading up to the death, how she was acting on the boat, and all that, it makes that theory somewhat compelling. But murder seems more likely than not to me at least when she departed her traveling companion on the train that's obviously the point she ran into some sort of trouble Maud's never seen again her luggage is never picked up I mean that's the moment where all the oddness occurs so that raises the specter of, and I think it's a pretty big specter, that she ran maybe into a couple of large men who weren't real happy with something she had done. And they decided that Maud should finish her train ride in their car. I don't think 
they would have necessarily had to, you know, wrestle her in there. She was a woman of a certain standing, and fisticuffs would have been beneath her. And no doubt, she probably thought she could outsmart these guys, which, you know, in a level playing field, she probably could have. But she gets caught up in this. They lock her in their train car, and they get off at the next stop, wherever that may have been. And maybe that is near High Street, Kingston Station. When they get off, you know, I don't buy the 4.30 time of death. I don't see any evidence in support of that just because her watch was broken at 4.30 does not mean that she was killed at 4.30 by any stretch of the imagination. There's lots of reasons why her watch could have been broken, right? Okay. So I suspect they depart the train at the next stop and they head to that little rest station knowing that it would be abandoned. I'm assuming this is at night. Again, I don't know the train schedule. For all I know, they departed at 10 a.m. and then had to just tool around the area for 12 or 14 hours, you know. But regardless, I think she does go to that station and when they get there, because there's nobody else around, that's when they kind of, one of the men kind of grabs her and holds her and the other one stabs her with her own hat pin. Well, this doesn't do the job and they see it doesn't do the job. She's bleeding all over the floor. And, you know, now her hairpin's broken. They can't use it really to do any more damage. So they've got to kind of improvise because they can't, be stuck with this half-finished murder, obviously. So they drag Maud, who I suspect at this point, being stabbed 15 times probably is going through shock and isn't giving a lot of resistance. You know, they drag her carrier down into the tunnels where they won't be seen, and it's there that they kill her. Maybe they strangle her and then leave her head on the train tracks to cover up that fact. Maybe they just leave her laying on the train tracks, knowing that she's too out of it to do anything. I just, the fact that there's no other injuries reported in the autopsy makes me think there's not a true struggle at any point in time, except for when she gets stabbed so rapidly those 15 times. I think her state of mind before arriving in the Liverpool area is important. She was scared. I mean, I don't think that's disputed from anything I've found on it. She was scared. She's seeing spies everywhere. She's telling folks, you know, talking to me, I'll put your life in danger, essentially. So that possibly could be some evidence of an undiagnosed mental illness, which... I agree could be a real possibility if she actually truly studied human trafficking and saw all the horrors that go along with it. Or she had gotten caught during her research and was basically told, you're not going to live to see that paper published. And so she's in a state of just constant anxiety and panic. I mean, there's a ton of money at stake 
if she was able to bring the spotlight down on human trafficking. So who do we blame her death on? Obviously, we have a, this large cast of characters that weren't real happy with Maud and her research. And those are just from the folks that didn't know anything about the human trafficking work, right? I mean, you've got basically every every family that's living from paycheck to paycheck thinks this woman's full of herself and needs a good slap in the face. But when we include in the trafficking aspect, it just gets so much worse. Man, today's world, this is a $150, $150 billion a year industry. In today's world, in today's world, when we have all these ways to track people, when we've got Facebook and and phones and security cameras everywhere, it's still massively profitable. Massively profitable, right? But in the early 1900s, this isn't a thing that people pay attention to. This isn't something society's concerned about. Police aren't keeping this on their radar. I mean, Maud was really kind of a pioneer here in saying, hmm, women or children are being kidnapped. They're being forced into sexual slavery. Maybe there's something here that we need to look at. So she gets a ton of respect for me for that. There's, and you know, this is a time when there's no meaningful way for police to to track it, right? I mean, if three or four kids are stolen from one city and then a mother and two kids are stolen, you know, five miles down the road, how do you piece all this together? Especially once they hit a ship and they start going to different countries, it would be a mess. It's like the Wild West. It's like the Thunderdome. There's just no rules. And it's all being done in the shadows. And, you know, think about it. We see the links that drug cartels go to today to protect their business. Why would we think that things would be different when it came to human trafficking cartels 100 years ago? It absolutely did not help Maud that she had become somewhat famous for the report on her hometown. She really pooped in her chili with that decision. This report basically called folks out for being drunkards and adulterers, terrible wives. Basically, anything unkind that could be said was said. These were people she knew. These were people she grew up around. These are her parents' friends, you know? And if the folks that know you the best hate you, how many friends are you going to have in other portions of the world? And just imagine for a second that some folks in Corsley maybe were involved in the human trafficking trade. Well, they'd have to be out to destroy her at this point, and they'd want to. Wouldn't they? She's already besmirched their good name. Now she's going to dive into the illegal affairs they engage in that really help support their family. If she was allowed to publish this report, it would destroy everything that was going on on the English side base of the human trafficking stuff. We can't sit here a hundred years later and point the finger at, at anyone in particular, of course. I mean, we just don't have that type of evidence 
because of the police work. But I would be mildly surprised if someone Maude knew was not involved in her murder. And so that's kind of my thoughts on it. You know, Maude got cornered by some folks connected to the human trafficking efforts. They tried and failed to stab her to death, so they let a train car finish her off. All because this woman was blessed with lots of intelligence and not a lot of wisdom. And it reminds me of that meme you see all over the internet, you know, that intelligence is knowing that tomatoes are a, few, uh, a fruit, but wisdom is knowing that they don't go in a fruit salad. So it sounds like mod is probably the sort that would put tomatoes in a fruit salad. Or she could have been that type of engineer I know we've all run into this situation where you go to change a car battery and you find out that it's tucked in the corner behind the tire, so you have to remove part of the fender. You have to pull off the front driver's tire just to get to change a battery. You know, there's lots of cars designed like that in the world. Another example, very smart engineers, no wisdom. I didn't think how this would work in the real world. I mean, bless her for trying to improve the world. She probably deserves to be remembered much, much more than she is. It's just, you know, I'm not saying any of this to disparage her. She just didn't know how the world worked. And that's what caused her death, in my opinion. So, very unsatisfying case to research. Very frustrating one. Very, very frustrating when you buy a book that's all about murders in this region and they intentionally say, Oh, we're not going to cover this one. But I'll keep that bitterness to myself. All right. So here's the palate cleanser to, to wrap this one up. We went with a more academic route on this, okay? And I hope you find that it fits in, that it's appropriate. It should be, but let's see if we, we did it, okay? So here we go. If I had 50 cents for every math test I failed during school, I'd easily have $9.13. Hopefully you get that one. I, I liked it. If you don't get it, maybe you should get an extra 50 cents. Um, if you haven't been paying close attention, I have been encouraging you to join our Facebook groups recently. And the reason I said that is because we're conducting another getaway. Getaway. We're conducting another giveaway. Maybe it's a getaway too. Who knows? The sky is the limit, right? Now you have to be a member of the Facebook group to learn the details. So move kind of quickly because that deadline for the giveaway will be on us much, much quicker than you're thinking. And we've already received a surprising amount of entries. So yay. If you're in the group, you should enter the dang contest. I'm giving stuff away. Why you wouldn't want free stuff, I don't know. You can sell it on eBay. I don't care. You should, uh, you should probably be in the group anyway, you know, because there's actually some awesome people in there. So by you not being in there, you're kind of telling the world that you're not awesome. And I'm just not going to tolerate that level of self-talk. Join the group. Let the world know you're awesome. In our giveaway, life is good. As you know, we also jam on Instagram and Twitter. If you're interested, if social media is your thing, on Instagram, we're kmh.podcast, which annoys me so much. On Twitter, we're just KMH Podcast. 
Um, Instagram, we do more silly, stupid things. Twitter is a lot more just updating on episodes and things like that. So if you're on one of those and you're interested in checking it out, please do. I'd love to have you, especially on Instagram. I think, I think we do good work there. Okay, we don't do good work. We do work, and some of it's funny, but, you know, it is what it is. All right. Um, well, that that's kind of it. I don't, I got nothing else. So we just, we've just got this awkward silence now, you know, like we're all waiting in an elevator. Take us to our respective floors. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I guess I'll be seeing y'all next week. Yep. Uh, until then, all I know to say is, right out. You survived another episode of Killing Missing Hidden, the podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.